Hello and welcome to Giving Connect, Philanthropy Australia's latest podcast. In this series, we'll seek to explore some of the key themes that help illuminate how successful grant making works. Our host for each episode is Ben Clark, Head of Philanthropy and Social Investment at Australian Executive Trustees. Your special guest today is Wendy Lewis, Executive Officer of the Collier Charitable Fund. Over the past 30 years, Wendy has worked at senior levels in a number of organisations covering a variety of areas. She has qualifications in accounting, education, philanthropy and management, and holds a number of board and volunteer positions, including Chair of the Invergowrie Foundation, Chair of the Independent Co-Education Knox School, a board member of Social Traders, and a mentor in the Youth Philanthropy Program at the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation. Wendy was awarded an OAM in the 2021 Australia Day Honours Award for services to the not-for-profit sector and education. Congratulations, Wendy, and welcome to our podcast series. And now, over to you, Ben. Thanks, Nick. Wendy, thanks so much for joining us today. And why don't we start with a little bit of an overview of Collier Charitable Fund and what attracted to you to your current role as Executive Officer? Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to come on to this podcast. So a little bit about the Collier Charitable Fund. Uh, it was it commenced in 1954 with the death or the passing of the uh, the third of the, the three sisters, um, Edith Collier. There were three sisters, um, never married. They actually each had a will that was identical to one another. So as one sister passed, went to the next sister, went to the next sister. So that when um, Edith finally did pass, the setup was actually identical. And so the fund was created with the assistance of their legal advisors at the time. And it was actually quite an involved sort of a, a, a structure. We have seven sub funds and the income has to be split equally across those funds, but in varying amounts. Um, and it's divided into 14ths. So um, three 14ths to one fund and so on and so forth. The funds cover a variety of areas, public benevolent institutions in Victoria, public hospitals in Victoria, the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation gets an amount of money. We have then public education in Australia, religious purposes in Australia, another fund that we actually work in partnership with the Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation again, and then disadvantage within Australia and anything else that's not covered by um, any of those other headings. So it's quite involved and uh, the sisters uh, obviously and, and their legal advisors at the time thought long and hard about how to put it together and it's still valid today. So Moving on from that, when this position came up six years ago, um, I was very interested in getting into the philanthropic sector and um, I had been involved, as we'd heard earlier, through the Invergary Foundation and I'd been involved with that, uh, with that foundation since 1996 and I was really keen to get into this area. So when this position came up, I, I applied for it and I was fortunate to get it. So all of a sudden, all of the things that I was really interested in doing um, sort of started to come together. And actually, just prior to that, um, I had done um, a, a little bit of study in the area uh, and done a grad cert in philanthropy and nonprofit studies. So that it sort of piqued my interest even more at the time. I guess an opportunity to pursue those personal and, and academic interests into a professional uh, role, one with what sounds like quite a lot of latitude across 14 charitable purpose areas. I'm kind of really interested in the, I guess, the, the development of Collier's grant making and in particular its focus on building capacity within the organisations that you partner with. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what capacity building means for you in your, I guess, in your role as the CEO of Collier, but also sort of the journey you've been on in, in working with the trustees? Prior to coming to the Collier Charitable Fund, I was the CEO for Girl Guides Victoria and I'd been there for about 10 and a half years. So working in a not-for-profit and then coming into a grant-making um, fund like Collier gave me both sides of the uh, of the coin, if you like. So from a capacity building point of view and, and actually what I had sort of gleaned, I suppose, from working in the not-for-profit sector was that it was really, really difficult to get what I call capacity building. And for me, capacity building is funding the back-end stuff of an organisation, not the programs that they do, but actually helping them be more efficient in what they're trying to do so that they can do their job or what they're set up to do more more effectively and efficiently. So things like uh, whether it's IT systems, whether it's staffing, whether it's a whole range of things that are not deemed to be sexy, that's the stuff that I, I really needed when, when I was working at Girl Guides. So that sort of has coloured the way I then look at things going forward. So when I came to Collier, they actually had already started to say in or on their website that they actually did capacity building. But what that really looked like and how that translated in actually their grants was probably... Uh, needed a bit more fleshing out. So one of the things that that happened when I started is well, I would bang on a little bit about how I'd found it difficult when I was um, the CEO of a not-for-profit to get things for the back-end function that actually would actually help me do my job better and enable the organisation to actually really focus on what it needed to be focusing on. So I suppose um, over time, we've looked at different things and sort of said, yeah, well, capacity building is important to Collier. They're, they're not necessarily interested and having their name up in lights. And so things that actually are program-driven and have a higher profile in some ways is not necessarily the thing that actually drives them in terms of their grant making. So when we started to look at things, one of the things that, you know, I would be sort of saying, you know, it's it's really important and this is why it's important because, you know, we can strengthen what they do, that actually makes them more efficient. So over the years, we've actually been looking at and we've probably emphasised it a little bit more on the website as well. And when I speak to people, and I sort of, and they ring up and say, well, what are the trustees interested in funding? I sort of say to them, well, no, it's not about what the trustees are interested in funding. It's about what's a priority for you. And I said, you know, and I would say that there are things around capacity building that the fund would actually support. And then all of a sudden, the not-for-profits that would be um, talking to me would be saying, well, that's really interesting. Can we explore that? So we're probably getting more applications in from people who I speak to. And then actually that then sort of is word of mouth and extends a bit more. So I think from the trustees' perspective, they are interested in doing it. They just needed to actually sort of look and see what was happening. And then with encouragement from me, people will actually put in applications that actually support that back end. And that's really what a lot of them want. Really interested in that idea around having to educate the grant seekers a little bit more around the trust's willingness to support capacity building or, as you really interestingly describe it, the back-end functions of an organisation. What was some of the feedback you received from, I guess, those grant seekers when you alerted them to the appetite from the trustees to fund capacity building? And has there been any discussions with the trustees themselves around engaging in those conversations with grant seekers as well? 
Well, well, yes. So when I talk to organisations about that, look, as soon as I start to say we all actually look at capacity building, I mean, their whole focus shifts. I mean, what they're looking to do in lots of instances, as I said, was about, you know, what are the trustees interested in? And as I say, you know, and I've said to the trustees as well, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about mm. the organisations that we're funding. And so I say the same things to, to the organisations in as much as it's not about trying to give the trustees choice and trying to put in multiple applications. It's about you've got to set your priority and be able to explain to us why it's important to you that we fund in this space. So, you know, if you, know, you need IT systems. I suppose a, a really good example of this has been the last year because uh, with COVID, uh, all of a sudden, a lot of organisations sort of started to think about, oh, I need to update my website, need to be able to put resources onto it, all these sorts of things to actually enable them to do their job you know, and continue their job because they couldn't do it in the same way they had been doing it. So we had numerous applications in that space and quite a number of those were funded because the trustees understand that this is a sort of area that people are really interested in So and really need the money because, as I say, once you get your infrastructure right behind, you then have the capacity to put more effort into going forward, providing that you actually um, keep your IT systems and and those back end things up to date, uh, and not let them lapse. But if you, they're more efficient that end, it means you can put more resourcing into doing what you do best uh, and really what your, your your focus is on. So the trustees understand that, and moving them forward in that in that regard wasn't difficult. And I suppose. Um, yeah, well, I suppose organisations really want that stuff. I think getting money for programs is easy. It's not easy for them to actually get and strengthen their back-end functions. And, and you know, one of the other things that we've seen too with COVID is that there are a number of organisations out there that were going to, you know, that their models aren't sustainable in the first place. So not everybody's going to survive. But for those that actually understand how to run their organisations and for foundations and funds to be able to fund them to actually strengthen those um, back-end uh, operations is really important to understand, you know, just how it drives them forward. So you need to have a holistic approach to actually looking at how organisations run in order to be able to fund them effectively. Yeah, I think that's one of the really interesting ironies of capacity building fundings is that you know, it's clearly so important yet so difficult for you know many, many grant makers to be really clear on their guidelines and defining the sorts of capacity building projects that they're really want to support, but also mm. grant-seeking organisations around articulating the case for why they need that investment. Clearly, you guys have done a little bit of this sort of work. Can you can you give us an example of a capacity building grant provided by Collier? Hmm. So, um, a few years ago, uh, we were celebrating um, our distribution of $100 million. So, the trustees said, okay, well, how can we actually sort of celebrate the sisters and what they've done and actually having to go, ha- having got to this milestone? So, we looked at a couple of things and, and one, of the, um, one of the things that we came up with was the Royal Women's Hospital. And the way we came across that was um, we'd given the Royal Women's Hospital a normal annual grant to develop an audit tool. And then... Uh, for a variety of reasons, we, we got Doesn't together. Doesn't get much more sexy than that, Wendy. Oh, I know. Very exciting audit tools, yes. <laughs> so from that, I then actually sat down with them and they were sort of saying, oh, you know, going forward, you know, what might you be able to do? How, how might you be able to work together? 
And we brainstormed a number of things. And one of the things that they had said to me was that the state government in the area of family violence had um, given them money, but they had never been able to evaluate the program because they weren't given money to actually evaluate the program. So the audit tool was sort of um, an opportunity to start to put something together. But really then they needed to evaluate um, what was coming out of the audit tool in this area of family violence. Um, And it's across all, all the hospitals within the state. And so Fund two, public hospitals in Victoria. For us, we sort of thought, wow, this is an opportunity to actually support all of the public hospitals in this space. So we were talking about it and they were sort of saying, well, how much money would you be able to give us? And then I actually said to them, now, that's sort of the wrong question. What does it cost or what do you need done and cost it out? And then depending on what the cost is, uh, we could, you know, if your colleague can't fund the whole cost, well, we could look to collaborate with some other foundations. So let's see what it would cost. Uh, because what I'd said to them was, if you know, we if we put a, a number on it, say we put a hundred thousand dollars on it, you would actually build your project to a hundred thousand dollars. But if we'd spent a little bit more, we could have probably got double the um, outcome of the evaluation. So they went away and they actually costed it up, and they came back to us and said, "Oh, it's going to cost four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The average grant of collar is um, thirty thousand dollars." And a year, a $30,000 grant a year, that's average, but, you know, we can go up to sixty dollars or $100,000. But we only tend to do annual grants as well. So what we actually looked at, we then actually had the Royal Women's Hospital come in and present to us. And after they left, uh, the trustee sat around and said, right, we'll fund the whole thing and we'll do it over three years. So that was a huge step forward for us. We ha- we've done a little bit of work in multi-year grants and certainly um, this was an example of really what we would say is a capacity building grant so that the hospital can understand the work that they're doing and actually deliver that across all of the hospitals in the in the state. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. So mm-hmm. we did that as a not quite a one-off because, as I said, we've done a couple of these multi-year grants in the past, but this was a very large one. And so that was, uh, yeah, and the, the hospital were very excited about it and we've been very excited about it. It's just coming to an end 30th of June this year. Um, and there's been huge amount of work done in this space, and you know it's it's enabling them to actually take this uh, the findings to not just in Victoria, around the country, and internationally. So it's ha- will have a big capacity. Great example. I'm sort of fascinated in the the acquittal or the success measurement process around a capacity building grants, uh, such as the one you've just illustrated. You know, I imagine through a public fund that's focused on public benefit institutions or hospitals, majority of money's historically probably gone towards buying hospital beds or you know, a piece of equipment that's going to treat X number of patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you and the trustees kind of assess the outcomes with your capacity building grant partners? Um, where, you know, you're really pushing, as you say, those that back-end function and looking at more things like collaboration and intangible outcomes. So acquittals for us have been very basic in the past. As, as I said, we have just annual grants and they're at the smaller end and we're conscious of not actually overburdening organisations that have smaller amounts, uh, smaller grants to write and develop, you know, copious acquittal reports for us. It's, it, it's just not right. In relation to something like uh, the Royal Women's Hospital, that was a collaborative approach in terms of the outcomes and developing the KPIs. Now, 
the hospital itself knew what it wanted to achieve. So we actually worked with them because it wasn't necessarily our area of expertise either in terms of actually understanding what needed to be achieved. But there were milestones. We set milestones for reporting and we're just setting this up now is the whole project will finish in June this year. There'll be a presentation back to the trustees, a face-to-face presentation, COVID <laughs> willing, um, and and be able to go through all of the, the, the outcomes. And we've actually had um, involvement in actually working, you know, I've been able to go out to the hospital and sort of see what they've been doing face-to-face as well. So there's a face-to-face element and a reporting requirement. And actually the grant was subject to a satisfactory um, annual report on, on where things were at. Because of the way the fund has been set up and it is an annual granting process, the way we get around multi-year is actually sort of saying subject to um, an annual report, then we can actually fund the, ne- the next tranche of money. So that's how we that's how we manage to get around right. that. So that works for us that way. So it's almost like a, a multi year pledge with yeah. um, you know those those commitments and release of funds. Yes. Wow, great! It sounds as though capacity building is kind of encouraging the trustees to think a little bit around you know how they can work within not the restrictions but the guidelines that have been set down by the will or the lawyers when when the fund was was set up is that a fair statement to say it is a fair statement to say and also gives the trustees the latitude to think even more broadly because uh, yeah the capacity building area is one thing another another area that's sort of getting a little bit of airplay at the moment is untied funding and so the trustees are looking at that sort of saying well you know why are we making people um, actually put in detailed submissions for things? Why can't we just sort of say, okay, we'll give you some untied funding? That's slightly problematic in terms of actually how we would do that. But in terms of actually requiring people to sort of say it's for program or it's for this or it's for that or or any of those things, we're sort of looking, and maybe we might be able to do with hospitals, as you rightly pointed out earlier, they tend to actually buy equipment and the, the grant is, is of a size that actually you can get equipment and, it, you know, you can look at it and sort of say, well, this piece of equipment is going to be used 24-7, you know, 365 days a year. You can sort of look at it and sort of say, well, that's going to have a huge impact on the number of people going through the hospital. Therefore, you know, it's having a, a good outcome. But instead of actually having to write to us and sort of say, we want it for this model microscope or this other piece of equipment or even a freezer to, to, to freeze some of their samples and those sorts of things. Why can't we just say, we'll give you a grant of X, just let us know how you're going to use that, yeah, how you've used it. So that's actually something that we're now looking at as well. So I think, you know, that actually for me shows just how forward thinking the trustees are and actually just trying to look at how we can do that in, in a way that will work for everybody. But it does allow for that sort of much more broader thinking. Even though we've got the restrictions around the seven funds, they are still broad within those categories. So it gives a lot of latitude to sort of think about how can you do it more effectively and efficiently and work with the organisations to get the outcomes that they need. Yeah, great. When, uh, Wendy, you're, you've been CEO at Collier now for a number of years, you're chair of Invergowery and obviously been working in the sector for a long time. Where do you think the majority of grant makers are on their journey towards, I guess, increasing their appetite for capacity building funding? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, we talk about it within the sector quite a bit. But when you actually, when I actually speak to individual organisations one-on-one, um, 
I get the impression it's not where I think it is. And we probably talk a little bit about it and we sound like we're doing it. But from the recipient's end, it doesn't seem to be there. Because when I say, and I probably talk a little bit like I'm talking to you now, I'm pretty blunt about you know how I sort of say things. But when I talk to them, these organisations actually are quite responsive to actually what I say and are happy to engage. And it concerns me a little bit that it's still about program. And that's why they respond to me in the first instance with what are the trustees interested in? Because that sort of suggests to me that where they're going and where they're, where they're talking to other foundations, that's what they're trying to do because that's what the expectation is. So when I sort of say, well, you know, well, what about capacity building grants? Well, oh, okay. Well, I hadn't really thought about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused in my own head as to where it sits, because as I say, we, we sort of sound as if we're doing it, but from the grassroots level, maybe we're not. And it might be too, because from where I sit, we probably look at a lot of small to medium-sized organisations where with some of the larger organisations, um, the other foundations might be working in that space and it may be working more with those organisations that capacity building is happening, whereas it's not so much with the smaller ones. Yeah, I think there's still a kind of prevailing sentiment around reluctance of supporting overhead for some reason. Mm. It's sort of seen as not traditionally the domain of you know, charitable funding. Yet here you are providing a great example of you know the educational journey it's provided for the trustees as well as you know some of the great collaboration it's fostered amongst the um, the grant seeking kind of community that putting these for these projects that that get funded. Mm. Wendy. Thank you so much for those insights. That was fantastic. Um, I might just invite you for one more question. Um, we're really interested in the perspective of our guests on what the future of grant making might look like. If you could make one change the way grant seekers and grant makers connect, what would it be? I think um, it would be about trust. And, and, and the reason that I say that is because there is still a power imbalance between the people that actually have the money versus the people that are asking for the money. And I think that we've got to try and actually build that trust factor so that, because I think one of the things that sort of concerned me a little bit is that um, organisations that are looking for funding are, are probably um, reluctant to tell you what doesn't work in a number of situations because they feel that if they say that the grant that they've been given hasn't worked, then they're scared that they're not going to get more funding. So this power imbalance creates this reluctance to really have a transparent relationship in lots of instances. So I think how we build that trust and how we sort of understand that, you know, with the money that the foundations have comes the power, whether we believe that or not, it, it, it is. So for the organisations that are seeking funding, they're so desperate for the money that they'll actually sort of tend to say what they think the foundation or the fund requires. So how do we get that into a much more transparent and trusting relationship? Whereby an understanding too that just because something fails or doesn't work out at the time doesn't mean that there's a, no learning from it and doesn't mean that you just might be ahead of your time and it's just the timing's not right for what it is you've done. So you just park it 
to one side and know that it's there and bring it out into the future. So we, we look at failure in lots of ways in the wrong in the wrong way. I think that you can learn more from failure than you do by getting it right. And sometimes getting it right is just a fluke as well. So therefore, replicating it isn't always as, as guaranteed as people might think. So I think understanding that failure and success actually are both learning outcomes will actually help people to understand and come together, I would hope, more transparently and more, with more trust. Thanks so much, Randy. That was Ben Clark, Head of Philanthropy and Social Investment at Australian Executive Trustees, with Wendy Lewis, Executive Officer at Collier Charitable Fund. This has been the Giving Connect series of the Philanthropy Australia podcast. Next week, Ben's special guest will be Joe Garner, Director of Strategic Grants. I'm Nick Richardson, and thanks for listening.